Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're going to be learning quite a bit about all types of sectors. We have a serial founder that has done it multiple times. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking about fintech, we're going to be talking about pivots, we're going to be talking about successes, failures, you name it. So I guess without further ado, Imad Akun, welcome to the Deal Maker Show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alejandro. So originally born in Pakistan, and you were there up until nine, I, I believe. So how was life, uh, you know, there? Yeah, it was, you know, it was early times. I was mostly just kind of playing cricket and, uh, yeah, playing with friends or whatever. So it was a nice life. Uh, but, you know, I'm happy my you know, parents moved to the UK and gave me kind of the additional opportunities of that. I love the uh, cricket part. You know, whenever I'm in a cap here in, in New York, I always tell them what's going on between India and Pakistan, and, and they get really into it. <laughs> so uh, it's amazing. And then and then you move to the UK. So uh, what triggered the move? Yeah, I think, you know, like a lot of immigrants, my uh, you know, family wanted to give us the best opportunities. And yeah, whether it's education or uh, kind of job opportunities, the UK just had and still has a lot more than Pakistan did. And that's that's kind of, you know, what kind of inspired my parents to move. Uh, and it's obviously you know, never easy for uh, families to move country. And they, they went through a lot of struggle, but that's like part of like the things that inspires me to kind of work hard and kind of make them proud. Was it like a big culture shock for the family? Yeah. You know, everyone kind of perceives these things differently. It was a, definitely a culture shock for me. Like, you know, I, I could speak English, but it wasn't like super great. And, you know, no one played cricket. Uh, so I had to learn uh soccer or like we call it football uh so yeah it's always yeah especially those first few years it's always difficult kind of settling into a, a new place uh, but you know eventually it became home at what point did you did you start to to get exposed to computers and develop that love for them uh yeah that's a good question i don't know why exactly but my dad bought like this kind of very old school apple i guess it was a macintosh uh back when we were still in Pakistan, like from the age of like seven and, you know, obviously like a lot of kids, you kind of first exposure is through games. Uh, and so, uh, I played a lot of kind of computer games and that was definitely like the initial thing. And I didn't think about it as like, Oh, I'm going to be a computer programmer or anything. Uh, and then this, then we've always kind of had a computer at home and, you know, I, I guess like, yeah, I grew up in the 
90s uh, as when I was a teenager then. And one of the other things that kind of gave me extra exposure was, you know, I was always interested in making like a little more money on the side. And, you know, back then there was the dot-com bubble and there was these kind of little silly things you could do to make money. Uh, you know, they used to have these like bars you could put on your bra on your desktop and they would show ads and you're just kind of, as long as you're moving the mouse, you'd make money from that. Uh, so there was a, there was this like, this kind of tertiary effect that the dot-com bubble had, that there was like ways of making money on the internet. Uh, so we made like little websites and tried to drive traffic to it and all that kind of stuff. And that's, that kind of exposure was like very much like this kind of initial thing I did as like a, you know, 14, 15 year old to like try to make money on the internet. That like was my real kind of exposure to like doing a little bit of programming and all that kind of stuff. Very cool. And then you went into Cambridge. I'm sure that your parents were super proud. Yeah, they were, you know, I, de I definitely was like somewhat lucky. I didn't, I, you know, I'd done some of this programming stuff. It wasn't something I was like at that time, like super passionate about, but I knew I was kind of good at it. So I ended up doing uh, computer science at Cambridge and yeah, making that decision was definitely like formative and like, you know, being able to have this like very unique skill that I could apply to like entrepreneurship. So, I mean, applying to entrepreneurship. So why did you decide to apply them at Bloomberg? Yeah, you know, there's, especially in the UK, there isn't an obvious path to entrepreneurship, at least, you know, back in 2006, it wasn't like you'd go, you know, go apply to Y Combinator and like become an entrepreneur. Uh, I thought the thing to do was like go to do a normal job and like maybe do an MBA and they'll teach you how to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and then maybe, you know, at that point you go start a company. So that was like the path I was thinking. Um, and yeah, Bloomberg has like, yeah, I like even back then FinTech um, and Bloomberg is kind of an interesting company where they're like fairly technical and, um, but building like these FinTech tools. Got it. Got it. So, so then let's talk about, because I don't think that you were for long at Bloomberg. So um, what happened? Yeah, no, it turns out I just have a really hard time being a cog in the machine. Uh, so it's, yeah, you know, it's just, there was like definitely interesting things happening there. But, you know, from my perspective, someone would like deliver a spec. I would never talk to a customer directly and, you know, we'd go implement that. And it was just like kind of, you know, it was very abstract and very uninteresting. Um, you know, the, you don't really work on like a holistic product and like go end to end on it or anything like that. Uh, so yeah, I quickly kind of got bored and this is back in like 2007 or 2006 and like TechCrunch was this big thing back then. Uh, you know, there'd be all of these interesting startups launching and, uh, I guess it was like web 2.0, they used to call it. Uh, and it just, yeah, it just seemed like a lot of fun. And a lot of the time, you know, me and my, uh, kind of buddy at Bloomberg would like see these things and say, Oh, we could build this ourselves. Uh. And that was like, yeah, it was an inspiration to just go do it ourselves. Uh, it's obviously like a lot harder than it seems. Uh, but at the same time, it just seems it seemed achievable and seemed a lot more fun than working at Bloomberg. Got it. And and then right after that, you started your your first company, which didn't really pan out as, as you had expected. What happened? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, these initial forays are often, uh, you know, it's more like an educational experience than like, a am building a startup experience. Yeah. You know, we didn't have any funding. Uh, we didn't really know how to like 
yeah, we knew how to do like the programming part, but like all the other pieces of like getting customers, like making money, uh, yeah, we didn't really have a clue. Uh, I think it was a great learning experience for me. You know, I spent a lot of time kind of networking, meeting a lot of other great entrepreneurs in the UK, seeing how they were doing it. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a very, even though it didn't work out, it was actually like a really fun experience for me where I felt like this was kind of what I wanted to do in the future. And it was, you know, you just, in life, you don't always know what is like, yeah, what is the future and what's the thing that's going to really get you very passionate and interested. And I quickly realized that like just being an entrepreneur and making products and like talking to other entrepreneurs was like the thing that I was like super passionate about in life. And it's like they say that you either succeed or you learn. So I guess uh, from this first rodeo, what was your biggest learning? Oh my God. <laughs> you know, we made every, every basic uh, and non-basic mistake there was to make. So I, I think the biggest real learning for me was that, you know, even now I would say, but back then, especially like you just kind of want to be in a hub uh, and the greatest kind of technology hub is still San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Uh, so that was my biggest takeaway. You know, uh, there's only a few VCs there, but forgetting all like that kind of like fundraising side of things, I think there's just a lot of learning to be had when you're kind of just surrounded with other entrepreneurs that are doing bigger things. Uh, and I quite, there's some, you know, there was some good entrepreneurs in London, but it was definitely a very kind of limited set. Whereas, yeah, there's just like a ton of like great entrepreneurs doing like really interesting things in San Francisco. And I would say that was my biggest learning to kind of move here. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I was very inspired to do that. And the ecosystem there in London has, has changed a lot. And you probably have... Yeah, I don't think it's at all comparable to what it was back then. Yeah. And I guess, uh, you know, there's a lot of people now probably listening that, you know, are outside of of tech hubs like like San Francisco. So so I guess, you know, as they're now looking at building and scaling their thing, you know, like what what kind of piece of advice would you, would you give them? Yeah, I mean, everyone, yeah. I think advice is always tricky because like people often try to generalize it and like fit it to, you know, like their experiences and everyone has their own experiences and their own kind of uh, view on life. I would, I would definitely say like, you know, start early as possible. I think it's, it's always good to just, you know, learn early when you don't have like responsibilities and you're, you know, my only downside back then was like, okay, I'm not going to make my like one year graduate salary, uh, from Bloomberg, it wasn't like, yeah, you know, I didn't have any major kind of responsibilities or things that, uh, you know, as you get older, you tend to like improve your lifestyle and have more bigger expenses and yeah. have families and all of that kind of stuff. So starting early makes sense. I mean, for me, like, I guess it just depends what your passion is. If your passion is going to be like, I'm going to do an entrepreneur and do startups, I think moving to a tech hub, at least for a while, it like makes sense. Um, but everyone does it their own way and there's no like necessary like one way to do things. Yeah, because the, the problem that I see these these founders that are outside of, of this type of hubs is that access to talent and access to capital is is a real hurdle. It's a beast. I think for early entrepreneurs actually like ways of thinking are like actually more important than like even some of this access stuff. And actually like that's yeah, we 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 did Y Combinator in my previous two companies and I, that's one of the things that's not obviously like obvious, uh, but like thinking in the right frame of mind, like, you know, knowing that like, okay, you know, customers are the most important thing. Like 
this is the kind of growth rate you need to be hitting. These are the things you need to be focusing on. You know, these are all like going to conferences and all of this stuff is a distraction. Like all of these kind of lists of things that like once you know them are obvious, uh, but when you're early on in entrepreneurship and they're not obvious, like what is the thing I should do and focus on and how sh should I think about these things? Uh, it's just useful to kind of having, you know, either being somewhere where there's a lot of entrepreneurs thinking in the right way or like doing an accelerator or something like that, that kind of trains you to uh, make these kind of, gives you like patterns for like how to make good decisions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess going back to to um, your lesson of um, of perhaps you know like being in a in a tech hub, you actually took that to heart and and you moved to San Francisco. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think I always say I was kind of very lucky to have Y Combinator. It really is like a very nice kind of stepping stone into moving to uh, Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, a they give you some money. But B, they give you like a community and, uh, you know, all my initial and like probably even all my friends now are like basically Y Combinator alumni. Uh, so that was the real enabling factor for me. Uh, yeah, it's always, a, you know, the U.S. does not make it easy to immigrate here. So there's always like tons of like visa issues and all of this stuff to solve. But, uh, but that was the real enabler for us. Got it. Because the uh, well, because then you decided to to go with the next one. So uh, what was the next company? Yeah, it's called ClickPass. It was a kind of single sign-on experience, made it easy to log into websites. So this is back in kind of two thousand and seven, uh, and there's this whole craze around OpenID, uh, and we kind of were like a easy to use layer around OpenID and made it easy to log into lots of websites. Uh, so that was kind of the sell. Uh, and we did pretty well. We had, you know, quite quickly grew to like 2 million users across you know, a bunch of different websites. Uh, but there was, yeah, no real monetization baked into it. And that was the real kind of flaw in the initial plan, at least. And how, how do you, I mean, after that experience of, um, because monetizing, you know, sometimes, I mean, you can have like a massive growth and all of that, but if you don't figure out how to make money, it's, it's just going to be, um, you know, really tough to have a business that is sustainable. So so how, how, how did you learn on, on how to look at monetization differently after this experience? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I don't think necessarily I did learn <laughs> because the first <laughs> kind of few years of the right. of the next startup we did, we also didn't monetize upfront. Uh, yeah, there's a like I guess like the ecosystem learns in parallel in some ways, and th that was definitely like the phase of like okay, let's do things, have lots of consumers, and we'll figure out monetization later. Um, I think. Nowadays, it's like pretty different where either you do a B2B thing, but even if you do a consumer-centric thing, like you're kind of monetizing early on. Um, so, that, yeah, I think it's like phases. And I, I mean, even even the, you know, the phases of company back then, whether it's like Twitter or Facebook, like, you know, they didn't monetize early on and they did end up being like big, big companies. So it was, it was definitely doable, uh, but there was obviously lots of people who, you know, tried to do it and didn't succeed. Yeah. And and obviously for this one for 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 basically what happened with ClickPass is that is that you guys you know made a decision that um, you know it was time to to go for an exit and, and it ended up being a, an aqua hire more of a talent acquisition so so tell us about that day that that the decision was made of pulling the plug somehow. Um, yeah, I mean these decisions are like often not binary. Um, we just kind of you know did the whole VC. Uh, roadshow just struggled getting anyone to, 
to bite. Uh, you know, I think entrepreneurs don't talk about it very often, but you know, often these VC things just don't work out. Like you spend kind of three months, six months uh, talking to as many VCs as you can get to and uh, no one's interested. Uh, and it does happen, uh, no, maybe not to everyone, but I think if you do it for long enough, enough eventually it will happen to you. Uh, so yeah, it was just obvious that, yeah. And also a lot of the time when those things happen, you yourself know that, you know, that's an issue, uh, right? Like we're like, okay, we have 2 million users, but like, we don't really know how we'll make money. Uh, so it just kind of, it like highlights kind of the underlying issue that you already recognized. Um, so yeah, so at that point we were like, okay, we could just give up. Uh, we could do something else or we could try to sell it. Uh, and yeah, we, I guess I don't even know how we kicked off these talent acquisitions. Uh, I think maybe we had a few inbounds uh, and then we reached out to the existing investors and community and just kind of tried to make it happen. And yeah, those things are always quite hard to get done. Yeah. Uh, and it actually took like, I think at least six months to get the talent acquisition done. Uh, a lot of it was done actually by my co-founder and he did a, he did a good job in pulling it off. Uh, I actually decided like kind of early off in that process that I wanted to just do another startup rather than kind of go work for someone, uh, which is basically what talent acquisitions work out to be. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I kind of started working on my next thing. And you waited no time because it was literally almost the, um, you know, right around the same month or so. Um, but here, you know, it's an interesting transition. No? You go from CTO to CEO. So was that a little bit frightening for you? Uh, not really. And then, you know, I was even as a CTO, I was like doing sales and whatever was necessary. So I didn't, you know, the transition wasn't that difficult. Uh, you know, one thing that like isn't always obvious to people is like, you know, people are like, oh, why didn't you take a break or something? Actually, like you know, back then, especially like your visas often depend on your company, right? So you can't afford to take a break because you'll be thrown out of the country. <laughs> uh, so, right. uh, yeah, between those three companies, you know, there was, there was basically no time to take a break. I mean, the other fact is, yeah, when you're like just being an entrepreneur and like not succeeding, you basically don't have any savings, right? So <laughs> it's not like yeah. you can just go, okay, I'm not going to work for two months because I've got all of the savings saved up. Uh, so a lot of it comes from necessity. And, you know, I guess back then, even now, I always have like a lot of energy for entrepreneurship. Like just, I just think it's kind of fun. So uh, it's hard for me not to kind of just do it. Got it. And HeyTab actually ended up becoming your your first big success. Um, you know, it had a, a nice exit. So I guess the, um, you know, tell us how, how did you come up with this idea? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't one idea. Uh, so HeyTab started off in the Flash gaming world uh, you know, back in 2009. Flash gaming was still a thing and we were yeah, thinking of making like a yeah, decentralized. It's not. If I pitch it to you now, you'll be like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> but <back> then <laughs> it made sense, uh, right? Uh, so we went through IC with this kind of flash gaming hub kind of idea, and we actually even raised money from Union Square Ventures. Uh, by 2010, and especially 2011, it was super obvious that like all of this kind of casual gaming was going to mobile, um, and you know we were just on the on a dying kind of platform. So. So then we pivoted completely to kind of a mobile gaming social network, uh, still called HeyZap. Uh, we did that for a few years, uh, couldn't, you know, got a bunch of users, couldn't kind of get it quite successful, but we started showing advertising advertisements inside the app. 
and that kind of got us into pivoting into ad tech. Um, and we did a couple of different ideas there. Eventually, we did something called mobile mediation, which is a, a way of showing ads in your app and then figuring out which kind of provider gives you the most money uh, and maximizing the revenue people make and, and giving them nice dashboards through it so that was the final thing we did it basically kicked it off in the end of 2014 it was very successful kind of the, in the ios store like all through 2015 like maybe three or four of the top 10 apps games were using it uh and that's you know as soon as we really had that product market fit uh you know we had some acquisition interest and we ended up you know, selling to our main competitor, uh, which is called Fiber. So, what was the um, what was that M and A process like? Oh yeah, it's just super painful. I always tell people like the the, you know, the two most painful things about entrepreneurship is like kind of trying to sell your company and trying to get VCs. <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just like a the thing that's like particularly hard about it is like it's just very hard to like learn from people when you're do going through like an acquisition process. It's just not that many people that have gone through it. And generally speaking, there's not much on the internet. You know, people tend to be, you know, cause they have confidentiality or whatever. I mean, I think the, the whole process is like very opaque and every company probably does it differently as well as an acquirer. Uh, so yeah, for us, it was just, you know, there was a lot of like, it just takes a really long time. I think from like the start of talking to acquirers to like having the deal closed took nine months. And a lot of that time is like under a lot of tension where, yeah, this company was in Germany. So we were literally like talking to them at 11 PM uh, about some like negotiation point, And then they would talk about it during the day. And then, you know, we'd wake up at 7 AM and talk to them again uh, about like the same point and see what they'd agreed to. So it was basically like, you know, you don't sleep very well in that kind of situation. And there was months and months of this where like every night and every morning talking to them uh, to, you know, incrementally move the deal forward. Uh, yeah, it's not a fun process at all. And nerve wracking as well, no? When when those moments where you feel like the deal is about to to fall apart. Exactly. No? Yeah. Yeah. Every every few weeks you're like, it's like a very, like, it's like a compressed entrepreneurship process. Sometimes you're feeling like, oh, great, like we're making progress. And often you're like, okay, this whole thing's going to fall apart. Like this is a deal breaker for us. And, you know, you're like, you get kind of mentally committed to it, right? Like it's hard to kind of run your company when you're thinking about this stuff. Uh, and, you know, after like a few months in, you're like, okay, this is a deal breaker for me, but I'm like two months committed into this. And then it's, a, it's, it's really a nerve wracking process. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess uh, uh, for you, you know, like the, the, you know, we're talking about roller coasters here of, of emotions, you know, like in the morning, you, you feel like you're on top of the world, maybe at night, you feel like the, like the world is about to fall apart as well, and everything is dark. Um, how, how have you been able to, to really, you know, be comfortable with those moments or, or deal with those moments as a founder yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I've always, well, always, but since 2009, had a very supportive wife who, who kind of gets it. And like, I think that's, that's a very yeah useful to have like a stable relationship where like someone can be supportive like that. Um, that helps. Uh, I think you kind of have to like a little bit view entrepreneurship as a game. Uh, so I know it's life and it's not a game necessarily, but at the same time, like if you, you know, if you've kind of rephrase like you're thinking like you're like oh i'm doing a vc fundraise but if you view it as a game you're like okay you know 
if it's a gain, these are the moves I have to make, and this is like outcome going to be, and I'm going to feel great at the end of that. And you know, if this move doesn't work out, it's not a big deal because it's just a game. You know, maybe you uh, maybe you lose a, a life point, but you keep going for the next stage, right? Uh, so I think that's like one way I view things that like makes them a little less kind of like makes the roller coaster less like up and down. Uh, I've been doing this for a long time as well. I mean, I think there's just a lot of tools out there for nowadays, especially like people acknowledge them a lot better. So, you know, whether it's like meditation or yeah, having other entrepreneurs that, that are going through this with you that you can talk about. And, you know, I try to be like pretty real with other entrepreneurs when I talk to them. I, yeah. Maybe five, 10 years ago, I used to be like, Oh yeah, everything's great. Like, you know, the whole, everything is awesome syndrome uh, that yeah. entrepreneurs tend to get. But nowadays, like, you know, if I'm struggling with something, I'll, I try to be honest about it. Uh, and yeah, then people have like much more kind of real conversations and I think you can feel like there's like a support structure around it. And, and you, and you, and you get to connect too with people now, because when, when I hear all these founders, when you ask them how they're doing and they tell you that everything is absolutely fantastic, you know, you're like, okay, there's something off. Yeah. I mean, and you know, everyone has the insecurities, so I don't like necessarily like judge them for saying it but at the same time like yeah i mean if you want to be if you want to have a real conversation it's just like if you start it off with like everything is awesome and nothing could go wrong and i'm just really good at everything i do then it's just not going to be like a real conversation yeah so so the uh the terms of hasap they were they were public uh, so what were the terms of this deal yeah it was a 45 million dollar acquisition deal very cool. And and then after this, you, you actually started doing the angel investing and, and then also were a part-time partner at Y Combinator. So so how was this uh, this phase where you were obviously helping startups, but, but then, you know, somehow on the other side of the table? Yeah, I mean, you know, after 10 years, I guess, of being an entrepreneur, I finally did have a chance to rest a little bit. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I wanted to reevaluate like I had. I had one kid and another kid on the way uh, and I wanted to think like, hey, do I want to do another startup or maybe become a VC? Uh, I knew it was one or the other because, you know, I wasn't going to retire at, at like 33 or whatever it is. Uh, and I was definitely like still very passionate about uh, entrepreneurs and startups. So I wanted to really, you know, for many years, I'd been kind of going to Y Combinator Demo Day and doing all these things and talking to a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, I kind of wanted to see what it was like being an investor and, you know, finally had some liquidity to try it out. Um, so, so yeah, I just, you know, we were also in this kind of earn out process that, you know, I'd gone from being the CEO of like this company and doing everything to being uh, kind of engineering manager at this company. And yeah, I, I already had engineers that didn't really need too much managing. Uh, so I had some extra time on my hands. So, you know, I kind of, went for entrepreneur uh investing with some fervor uh and yeah ended up investing in like 30 companies in that first year uh and yeah it was a, it was an interesting process i learned a lot about you know how to do it how to uh pick companies and whether i enjoyed it or not and in the end you know my conclusion was it was actually pretty fun um but it didn't feel like especially in san francisco and especially at the seed stage it didn't really feel like i was you know, I was quite having like a massive game changing effect. Like I often found the companies that were very good, uh, tended to be good regardless of like what advice I gave them or how involved I was. Uh, and I kind of decided the most impactful thing I could do was like do another company. 
Got it. And we're going to talk about Mercury in, in just uh, in just a sec. But I wanted to ask you here, um, in terms of of picking startups and having that pattern recognition, I think that you know, having been a, an operator yourself, I think that it also gives you an edge over perhaps the guys that you know just went at it from corporate, you know, and and started investing. So I guess what what did you see yourself uh, in those founders that had potential? Because you you have great startups in your portfolio like Rappi or Airtable. So so how were you able to really recognize the ones that have potential from the ones that didn't? You know, I'm not like an expert on this. So I think it's like an evolution uh, and I'm still kind of learning. Uh, for me, you know, I think like the two things I look for in these kind of early co- companies is the founder and the market. And from the founder perspective, which I guess is like more of your question, uh, I'm really looking for people who just have this kind of insatiable drive, especially to solve that particular problem. Uh, and there's just people you meet and you're like, wow, this person's just kind of unstoppable. Right. Uh, and it's not, yeah, it's not about like, you know, where they went to college or like, you know, if they worked at Google, it's there's there's just this other attribute. Uh, and of like, yeah, through a series of investment, like that attribute is by far the biggest kind of indicator of success rather than like market or current product or even traction. Um, yeah, it's, it's like actually kind of hard to like quantifiably tell you like how you measure that attribute, but I feel like you kind of just feel it in these conversations. Got it. So, um, so just to wrap up this uh, this phase in in your professional um, career, um, what what would you say to the folks that are perhaps thinking about joining um, a, a, an accelerator program for startups? I mean, based on on all this experience that you got from Y Combinator, I mean, what what would you tell them? Because right now there is a lot of noise around accelerator programs and incubators, and and I think obviously Y Combinator is amazing, but but how would you you know recommend them that they you know filter through the noise? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think if it's like, yeah, a Y Combinator or maybe another kind of top tier accelerator, I think it's it's generally speaking early on in entrepreneurship career, like a pretty much a no brainer, uh, you know, from the things you can learn and kind of the connections you can make. Uh, I guess it, maybe it's like more of a question mark when it comes to kind of new accelerators or things that have like less of a proven track record. Uh, and yeah, I think it's like a case by case judgment at that point. Got it. So let's talk about your your next rodeo, your latest one, Mercury. So uh, tell us about the incubation process and and how did it you know come to life? Yeah. So Mercury is pretty different from other companies. You know, I've had this idea to do kind of a bank for startups since yeah, very 2014 or so. Um, I was just kind of very frustrated at Hayes App uh, with the banks we dealt with. Um, you know, the product sucks and it never improves. They don't really care about customer service. Uh, they charge you fees for all sorts of random things. Uh, so it was just a very kind of annoying experience. And, you know, a lot of other things that we dealt with on, on a, as a business improved over time, but banking was just kind of very stagnant and stale. Uh, so that was kind of part one. Part two was we were a marketplace, like the way we'd make money is advertisers used to kind of pay us a bunch of money. And the end of the month, we used to pay out developers, like 600 developers. Uh, so doing that process with the bank was just extremely manual. Like they didn't have any APIs to do it. Uh, and, you know, we ended up like, you know, spending like three days at the end of month, end the month make, kind of making all these payouts. So uh, that was kind of part two of the problem we wanted to solve. And then part three uh, was, you know, we were about 
18 people, but we didn't have a kind of CFO or anything like that. So just staying on top of the finances, I always thought was like fairly tricky. And the way most startups do it is they receive kind of an Excel spreadsheet from a bookkeeper. Um, and we would be waiting for this Excel spreadsheet to just figure out like, how much money do we have? Like, what's this, the health of the business on a holistic level? Uh, and I think, you know, a bank actually has all of this data already and they could do a much better job of kind of putting all this data together and giving you a nice kind of view on your finances in real time. So those were kind of like the problems I saw and I was just kind of pretty excited about it. Uh, it's also, you know, I really wanted to do something that was very meaty and I could do for like the next 10 years of my life plus. Uh, and I thought like, you know, there's, there's nothing kind of more scary sounding than like setting up a bank. Uh, so, so maybe I should yeah. just do that. Uh, yeah. So that was kind of like the formation process. Uh, and yeah. So in 2017, after, yeah, I was finished with my earnout at that previous company, I kind of kicked off a fairly long kind of learning process where, you know, obviously knew it from like an entrepreneur's perspective, but I definitely didn't know like how you, you know, go do, go execute this thing. So, uh, and I'm kind of like a, a person that learns by kind of talking to people. So, I just talked to every fintech entrepreneur I could find, every kind of fintech lawyer I could find, and it turns out there's a ton of lawyers, uh, you know, people that worked at banks, people that worked at Visa and MasterCard, people who'd done challenger banks in the UK and Europe. Uh, you know, there's this, when you really like dig down, there's this wealth of kind of knowledge, and often people are more willing to kind of share their experiences than you would expect. Uh, and then everyone I'd speak to, I'd say like, hey, who else I should speak to? And they'd often have like two or three other people I should speak to. So it was a whole, it was a viral kind of learning process. Uh, and then eventually, you know, I figured out what the right path for us was. And yeah, over time started digging in deeper into it, like, you know, getting a, getting a kind of some term sheets from partner banks, uh, started doing like the initial kind of designs. Uh, and in August, we basically kind of incorporated and kind of got together with a couple of people that I'd worked with at my previous company uh, and they joined as co-founders and we kind of kicked it off properly in August 2017. So tell us about the founding team because obviously now at this point you had a lot of experience, you had seen a lot of teams as well at Y Combinator so I'm sure you were very careful as to who you would choose to put on the right seats of the bus. Yeah, for sure. I think the team is like by far the most important thing. Uh, so five of the eight initial kind of set of people that joined us, including me, uh, all worked together at Hazap. And, you know, I'd basically been like filtering the best people I'd ever worked with at Hazap over like eight years. So those were, those were, you know, just the right people for us to start with. And, you know, I already knew I could work well with them. I knew what their, what their strengths were. Uh, and yeah, that was kind of the initial set. So it's a little boring in some ways, but in other ways, I think it worked out like really well for us and we still kind of enjoy working with each other. And I guess like we've all been working with each other for like seven years now. And was there like a common trait that you were looking for? Like one thing that was a, an absolute must from these people that you were onboarding at the beginning? Yeah, that's a good point. I think the, actually like the culture of Mercury kind of describes like these common traits, like just like relatively low ego, uh, very kind of humble and helpful and fairly kind of customer centric and like kind of like like a combination of kind of no bs but at the same time willing to kind of really understand what the underlying problem is rather than just kind of take things at face value uh, yeah so some of those things it wasn't necessarily like a conscious thing i was just like okay 
who are the best engineers, who's the best kind of, you know, salesperson, et cetera. So it was, it was definitely also just like, just like very results based, right? Like I already knew who could produce and, and that's what we wanted. And here you are uh, jumping into a super regulated, um, you know, space. So uh, what was that process of reducing the steep learning curve like? Yeah, I mean, everything from the outside looks scary, right? Like when you look at like, yeah, any of any startup, you'd be like, oh, wow, that seems like hard to build or like hard to understand. Uh, I think regulatory things sound even harder because it's kind of out of your control. But at the same time, like, you know, when it comes to regulations, like as a founder, you shouldn't be like making decisions on regulations. You should have like lawyers and then compliance people that are real experts on it dealing with it. So a lot of the process for me was finding who are the experts and who I can rely on. Uh, so I think I probably ended up talking to like 60 plus lawyers and, you know, ended up, we ended up picking like a couple that, that I'm super happy with. Uh, one's like a FinTech specialist. Another one was like an FDIC, you know, someone who used to work at the FDIC. Uh, so yeah, I think you have to figure out like what you need to know, what you can outsource, who's the right people to outsource to, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, I think it's like a, learning is always a progress from like, oh, I don't know anything to like, okay, you know, I can understand what the, what the limits of knowledge are and like how I can kind of work with this. So what is the uh, business model of Mercury for the people that are listening so that they get it? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? In fintech, you're dealing with money and everything is kind of related to money and there's ways of monetizing that. Uh, so we give people a debit card uh, and we make, you know, uh, every swipe, like Visa takes a certain percentage and you know, as a card issuer, we get passed through something. It's called interchange. Uh, so that's one revenue stream for us. Uh, we also have, uh, we take, you know, this float on like check, our checking and saving account, like the money that sits in the bank account. And uh, we send that to our partner bank and partner bank gives us kind of a ref share on that. Uh, so that's our second revenue stream. Uh, we also kind of recently launched the API and for kind of more, more kind of enterprise use cases for the API. We're charging a kind of a SaaS fee. Uh, so that's kind of our third revenue stream. Got it. And you guys have uh, have raised quite a bit for, for the company already in 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 this past couple of years. So how, how much money have you guys raised? Yeah, we raised $6 million in our seed round kind of in August 2017. And we just, uh, I guess, a couple of months ago closed a Series A of $20 million. So, I mean, now you, you obviously were on the founder, then to the investor, then back to the founder. So now you knew, you know, like uh, to, to look from the founder side to the investor side and, and really understand what was going on on the other side. So how did you pick your, your partners on this one? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Actually, like it turns out like both the partners at like Andreessen Horowitz and at CRV are like both previously in ad tech. Uh, so the, we definitely have like an affinity of like how painful it is to be an ad tech company right. and <laughs> uh, that helps. But, you know, obviously it wasn't necessarily optimizing for that. Uh, for me, it's, you know, it's like a human relationship. So like really finding someone that you can like resonate with and, you know, like you're potentially going to be working with them for 10 years. So, you know, you want to feel like they're really on your side. They're they give you kind of smart ideas and things you can work with. Um, so those are some factors. I mean, it's nice having a firm that has like good kind of brand recognition from like a hiring perspective and like, um, yeah, future fundraising perspective. So those are other factors. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's a process. You kind of, you know, you kind of throw yourself out there and you know, hope you 
hope you get someone that you like. Yeah, I mean, you got great, great uh, investors, Andreessen Horowitz, CRV, and then really great people too, uh, individuals. I mean, you even got uh, people like Bill Clerico, you know, from WePay. So you definitely surrounded yourself by, by knowledgeable people. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think altogether we have about 100 investors. Uh, and I think I think it's just good to have a kind of a large set of people that have like some skin in the game and want you to, yeah, want you and help you succeed. Absolutely. So I guess, uh, how do you see how do you see the um, the company evolving? I mean, if you had to um, to kind of like go to sleep and and wake up again, you know, in in a world where let's say the vision of of Mercury is fully realized, what does that world look like? Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, I have like pretty unbounded uh ambition uh so i think you know the top four banks in the u.s are worth a trillion dollars i think in the future they will have to be technology companies uh banking is one of the few things where technology companies are not dominant even though it's just basically dealing with bits uh so i guess like if i had to go to sleep for 10 years i'd want to wake up and you know one of those slots is like taken up by mercury and you know we'll do hopefully a really good job with like kind of banking digitally enabled businesses and potentially like some set of consumers as well uh so yeah i think there's like there's a pretty interesting company to build here which is like kind of like a google for banking i love it i love it so um so after all these same you know all these companies all this experience you know 120 investments that you've done already in in startups as well yourself as, a, as an angel i guess you you've seen quite a bit so if you had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, uh, that younger self, perhaps coming out of Cambridge, that was thinking that one day would start a business. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to that younger self before launching a business and why, knowing what you know now? Uh, well, that's a, that's a tricky one. I think like it's hard to do that because I think all the phases that you go through kind of matter to you. And yeah, I think you can only... There's only so much you can like give a piece of advice and that like somehow like skips a phase because you sometimes just have to kind of experience it and learn it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I find it like hard to do, and it's a, it's a really good question. I do think about it. Uh, I think, you know, I did in many ways, I did the things that I needed to do and like, I don't know if you could re like rewrite many of them. Hmm. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that it's important to go through the pain because I think that that pain, you know, and, and, and those attempts, you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're making you grow and, 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 and also develop yourself and ultimately get, get yourself closer now to the, to the success or to the finish line. No. Yeah, exactly. So I guess uh, for the folks that are listening, uh, Imad, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter a lot, just at Imad, uh, so you can just like reply to me or DM me or something like that. Um, you can always email me at Mercury slash mrmercury.co. Um, yeah, I'm busy, but I try to get back to people, especially entrepreneurs, uh, if I can be helpful. Fantastic. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me 
at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.